Hello, I'm Aaron Lohr. And I'm Caitlin Andrzejczyk. And this is the Endocrine News Podcast. Thank you for downloading this podcast, a free service of the Endocrine Society. In this episode, we discuss the questions endocrinologists are asked by their patients about osteoporosis. We hear from Ann Kearns, Associate Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Kearns led a discussion about osteoporosis treatment and patient care in September at the Endocrine Society's Clinical Endocrinology Update in Miami. Also, Caitlin will have a research update and a trivia question. Stay tuned. Today's interview discusses bone health and focuses on the role of calcium in maintaining bone and cardiovascular health, the use of medications and supplements, and the benefits of exercise in maintaining bone health. Dr. Kearns also encourages osteoporosis patients to have meaningful conversations with their physicians and develop strategies to maintain healthy and meaningful lifestyles that work for them. If you are interested in learning more about recent research on bone health, check out the Endocrine Society's thematic collection of articles from JCEM, Endocrinology, our open access journal of the Endocrine Society, and Endocrine Reviews. Go to www.endocrine.org podcast to find this episode and a link to this thematic collection. Clinically relevant topics include a study of pediatric Crohn disease and its impact on bone and muscle. They also examine the genetic regulation of bone mass in men and examine the relationship between circadian rhythm disruption and bone formation. Additional clinical papers look at the influence of the gut microbiome on bone health, and researchers perform an analysis of bone density in patients with spina bifida. Our selection of basic science articles investigates the role of the sirtuin, SIRT3, in bone osteoclastogenesis and skeletal homeostasis. We have papers that also describe how osteoblasts differentiate, and look at how the drug metformin affects cortical bone mass in mice. We also highlight a new area of bone research bone neuroendocrinology, that is based on the evidence that pituitary hormones may be involved in bone remodeling and metabolism. This is an exciting new area of research. All of the articles in this collection are free to download. And now for our trivia question. Our bones are constantly changing, with new bone being made and old bone being broken down. But when do most people reach their peak bone mass? I'll have the answer for you at the end of the interview. And now our talk with Dr. Ann Kearns, Associate Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. I'm willing to bet that most patients take their questions to the internet before they take them to their healthcare provider. Have you noticed the internet's influence on the questions that your patients are asking? Yes, I think it is somewhat generational in that younger patients typically seek out the internet. Older patients may rely on their family members, their neighbors, and their experiences to guide the questions or their impressions of osteoporosis and the medications. But yes, there is a sector of patients who is highly engaged with the internet. Well, that's good because you want to have more, I guess, informed patients. But I guess sometimes you might also end up with possibly some misinformed patients based on where they're going for their information. Yes, I think that's true. And I often, if they don't mention that they've done research on the internet, I often introduce it saying, you've probably looked some things up on the internet, Mm -hmm. and what questions or information have you found uh, that I haven't yet addressed? 
because usually I like to go through my information first and gather uh, questions along the way. But at the end, I often open it up because I think sometimes they're hesitant to share with their healthcare provider that they've actually looked things up. And some of the information is good and some of it's not so good. <laughs> right. You see a lot of patients with osteoporosis. What are some of the questions that you hear most often? So many questions ask first about the medications and whether they really work. Typical things are, I actually heard those medications cause broken bones. Mm. Or my dentist said those things are dangerous. Uh, sometimes I get a lot of questions about supplements and uh, natural products that patients want to use, thinking they might be a safer way to address their osteoporosis. And of course, there's recurring questions about the safety of current calcium supplements and vitamin D. So we're here in Miami at Clinical Endocrinology Update, CEU, and we had this great opportunity to bring all these endocrinologists into one room. And what I really liked about your presentation is you said, here are a bunch of questions that we often get asked. And you even said, we don't have time to get into all of them. So you asked them to vote for some of the questions that they most wanted to hear the answers to. One question that they voted for right away was, is calcium bad for the heart? Right. And most of us remember that this got a lot of press and a lot of newscasts a couple of years ago showing that there was a potentially an increased risk of cardiovascular events with calcium supplements. And that has been rehashed and relooked at. And I think what unfortunately doesn't make the news is the retraction or the modification of potentially negative uh, results. But I think after a lot of analysis, it's pretty clear that there is not a clear link between calcium, either from diet or supplements, and heart disease. So I think we could move on from that and say that still the best way to get calcium is from your diet. If your diet is very far from adequate in calcium, then you add enough supplements to get up to uh, the recommended amount. Going above and beyond the recommended amount, as I often tell patients, does not give them any benefit and does have some risks, especially risks of kidney stones. Mm. Uh, as with many supplements and many things we recommend to patients, they sometimes carry it beyond the amount that's recommended. And for us to all recognize that enough is good, too much may not be better. Mm. Okay. The second question, and all these votes I, I thought was interesting, they were so kind of close together, you know, as far as what they really wanted to get answers for. So the second one was, should I take these medications? My dentist says that they may be dangerous. Right. And usually this is patients who have some information about a rare complication from the most common category of medications we use to treat osteoporosis. Not all medications, but the most common category, and that is the bisphosphonates, which mm -hmm. includes the brand names Fosamax, Actinel, Boniva, Reclast, and a non-bisphosphonate, Prolia. They're all medications uh, that have been very rarely associated with what I like to describe to patients as a sore on the jaw bone that's slow to heal. Mm -hmm. Usually healing does occur, but it is slow to heal. So there's an area of exposed bone. Commonly think about it like an ulcer on your skin that's slow to heal. So there's an opening that's slow to heal. Dentists are very aware of this and dentists uh, are very conservative in my opinion. So they get very nervous if a patient needs 
a tooth pulled on these type of medications. But I think that if we refer patients to specialized dentists who are more comfortable with taking the necessary precautions, dental procedures can be done very safely and with very low risk. And I think what we need to balance with our patients, and maybe I didn't get a chance to hit on this in my presentation today, is that these rare complications are overwhelmed by the benefits of the medications, really overwhelmed. If you read a bottle of aspirin, you could bleed to death, but the benefit for your headache or your arthritis might outweigh that. So I think we just have to keep it in perspective. I generally acknowledge it and I tell patients, I'm gonna tell you about the rare complications so that we're all on the same page, not because you're likely to experience them, but most often because you're likely to hear about them. And I want you to have the right information. I want you to be able to say to your friend, neighbor, my doctor and I talked about that. And we feel comfortable that the benefits are much greater than those rare complications. The third question is one that got a lot of reaction, I noticed, from the room, which is, can I manage this naturally? And a lot of people seem to have this instinctual reaction that, yes, I hear that question quite a lot. I think it's a natural thing for our patients to say that there has to be a diet and exercise uh, regimen that is as good as prescription medications. And I think that if that were the case, the obesity talk that I just came from, which followed my session, would be unnecessary mm. because that is clear that diet and exercise is, is difficult for all of us. So I think, again, this gets back to your question about the internet and patients have searched on the internet and often the information about supplements and exercises or devices is not the rigorous evidence that traditional medicine requires or the FDA requires to approve things. And the reason for that is we have to have a good understanding of the risks and benefits. Short of these very rigorous studies, we don't have that information. Now, generally, those rigorous studies are done by pharmaceutical companies who stand to gain financially. Sure. So when you're talking about something like vitamin K, uh, there's not as clearly a deep pocket uh, that can be um, used to fund those studies. Uh, so smaller studies or observational studies are all that are available. But patients have a lot of interest in the supplements, and I generally steer them away from things that I think are clearly dangerous or potentially dangerous and tell them that the other things are not proven and to remind them that the rigorous process for approval of medications really highlights that we should be thinking about the best things, mm -hmm. uh, where we understand at least a lot about the risks and the benefits. Things on the internet and things in the supplement and exercise field seem to come in waves. The current most common question I get is vitamin K. Mm -hmm. And so I talk to uh, the patients about why should we think that vitamin K should work. Um, and it's because there are proteins in the bone that require vitamin K to be uh, fully processed. But that studies looking at the use of vitamin K supplements do not show clear benefits in all studies about reducing the risk of broken bones or about improving bone densities. And it's, in my opinion, inaccurate to point to one study that says benefit 
but not acknowledge the other studies that didn't show a benefit. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I talk to patients, I tell them that's the perspective I'm using to inform my recommendation about using supplements. Exercise is trickier because it's hard to do big studies on exercise. Uh, I think it's clear that activity is beneficial to bones and it's beneficial to lowering the risk of broken bones. Is that because it increases bone density or because it reduces falls or because it improves overall health? I'm not sure. I say it doesn't matter to me that I think the benefits of exercise, if it's done safely, are so overwhelming, not only to the bones, but to the heart, to the weight, to mental health, uh, to our sense of well-being, that there's no reason not to do that. Can I point to a specific exercise regimen that has been proven to lower the risk of broken bones or to improve bone density? That's, again, hard to say. Mm -hmm. But a combination of resistance and uh, weight-bearing is usually uh, a good approach. If patients have specific limitations, I often engage physical therapists who are very good at assessing what are the risks, what can they do safely, guiding them and how to incrementally increase, especially if they're frail, older patients. Uh, so I think we should probably, if I recommend anything, it's engaging a good physical therapist uh, to help guide your patients. Because I think helping patients answer questions about supplements and exercise gets their buy-in for when then I need to talk about medications. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you think that most healthcare providers are getting the answers to these questions right, or is there room for improvement? Is there a way that we can help build their confidence in, in how they're answering these questions? I think that it takes time and experience. So I think I've only come to this as I've been practicing over 20 years. I also think as appointment times get shorter and shorter, mm -hmm. uh, there is a tendency to jump to the meat of it, which is often the medication or which medication. Right. But I think ultimately what we want as providers is the patient to be engaged. We know that 50% of patients will walk out of the office with a prescription for a medication they never fill. And sometimes they take the prescription to end the encounter because they don't feel that they're getting their questions answered. But I think if we take the, a few minutes more up front to address the patient's questions, their concerns, I think, and I've not uh, studied this rigorously, then I have a better chance of getting buy-in for, uh, for the overall program. That's great. So I don't think it's really getting the answer right, but getting the approach right. And that's hard in the days when we're time pressured. You know, we know that osteoporosis mostly affects women, but it can affect men as well. Do you find that men and women ask different questions? Uh, I think men and women approach their health differently. I think women clearly are more engaged with the health care system. Uh, often men are accompanied by their wives. And often the women have more questions than the men. Hmm. Uh, men tend to either dismiss it as not, they don't have a problem and they're not really interested in hearing about it. They typically have not done as much research on the internet as women that I see. But also sometimes they're easier to get to at least agree to a treatment plan. So I do think there are some differences. So finally, I thought I'd flip the, the table a little bit. So we talked about how 
patients have their questions. But and you mentioned a little bit of an answer to this already, but how should what questions should doctors be asking their patients? So I think that really to make it meaningful to the patient, we need to make a connection to their life. So oftentimes, especially with an older patient, I will ask about what kind of activities or even a younger patient who tells me they have small grandchildren. What do you like to do with your grandchildren? Mm-hmm. Oh, we like to do go to the park. We like to. How will osteoporosis affect what you like to do? How will osteoporosis untreated or fractures that accumulate affect your life? For older patients, if they've already had a fracture, they've already had a a brief stay in a nursing home, usually independence is very important to them. Uh, So I think that the most important thing we can do is make it real for the patient by engaging in their life and what's meaningful to them. Most patients will tell you if you ask them. What kind of things do you enjoy doing? Mm -hmm. What's important that you keep able to do as you age? Most people want to compress disability uh, to as short a time at the end of their life as possible. And so I think if we approach osteoporosis as a way to age, addressing it as a way to age healthy or age gracefully or uh, maintain independence and limit disability, we can get good buy-in. I think the problem is we focus sometimes on the wrong things, which is broken bones. Yes, broken bones, but what are the consequences? What does that mean for me? Mm -hmm. A a broken bone is by itself isn't as scary as a cancer diagnosis or a stroke, but disability is a scary thing for all of us. So Mm -hmm. I think that's the way that we should um, address it with patients, engage with their life. Well, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Earlier in this episode, I asked, when do people reach their peak bone mass? The answer is that most people reach their peak bone mass in their mid-30s. While bone remodeling and growth still occurs as we age, we will end up losing a little more than we gain. That's all for this episode. Thank you for listening to the Endocrine News Podcast. To enjoy our past episodes, be sure to visit www.endocrine.org slash podcast. And don't forget to let us know what you want to hear on the podcast. Write to us at podcast at endocrine.org. You can subscribe to Endocrine News Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to leave a review on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.